This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're looking this evening at verses 3 through 13. Hear the word of God, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, Knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Let's pray. Lord, open to us your word this evening and instruct us by it and by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. These verses are one of the highlights of 2 Corinthians and indeed out of uh, all of Paul's letters. Uh, The Reformation era scholar Erasmus commented on it. Its effect is such that nothing could be lovelier or more fervent. Uh, more modern commentators uh, said of it, it is certainly one of the high peaks not only of this remarkably human epistle, but of all Paul's writings. It displays without any trace of artificiality all the ardor and devotion and sincerity of his regenerated nature. And it is, in a letter in which Paul reveals his heart perhaps more than any other, uh, this passage particularly, Paul uh, unburdens himself of his view of himself and his particularly his his view his thinking uh, his view of his own ministry how he sees his ministry uh, in some ways being one of those passages that really uh, is made up mostly of a list in some ways it, it, it defies outlining uh, Paul actually was not when he wrote these letters thinking of writing and concise sections, each dividing into three obvious points, uh, but simply wrote as his heart led and as his mind led and certainly as the spirit led. However, as we look at this passage, it does remarkably, but not unsurprisingly, divide into three 
points. First of all, verses 3 through the first part of of verse 4, you could really state as Paul's desire, his desire for his own ministry, his desire for his own integrity. And then Paul's commendation, and and here you have the list that he goes through there. And then finally, Paul's appeal in the last three verses there, verses 11, 12, and 13, his appeal to the Corinthians. Because as Paul uh, speaks from his own heart about his own ministry, his end is to call to the Corinthians that they likewise would open their hearts to him. And so let's look at what we have here. In the first place, uh, Paul speaks of his own desire for the integrity, uh, for the worthiness of his ministry. In some ways, chapter 3, or verse 3, picks up from verse 1, where he says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And it's a natural transition into verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way. Verse 2 is in some ways a, a parenthesis, kind of a, another thought thrown in. For he says, in a favorable time, I'll listen to you in a day of salvation. I've helped you, quoting the Old Testament and applying it. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. But in working with the Lord and in, in working together with God in the uh Ministry of reconciliation that he talked about, we looked at last time. Uh, he goes on to speak about his work for the Lord in that ministry. And his desire in verses 3 and 4 uh, basically describes it three ways. First of all, he says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way. In other words, he does not want there to be in the way he lives any hindrance, any stumbling block to anyone coming to faith in Christ. You know that Paul himself uh, defended the right of those who uh, labored in the gospel, who devoted their lives to the gospel to be supported financially in that work. Paul even defended his own right for that, and yet he would forego that right lest any question his motivation. And certainly that was a problem with the church in Corinth where uh, detractors had come in and stirred up opposition to Paul, had put thoughts in people's minds, questioning his integrity, questioning his motivation. And Paul says of his own ministry, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. The word fault there also uh, could be translated blame, uh, has overtones of mocking overtones of ridicule. In fact, the word that Paul uses uh, from the same root comes the name Momus, who was a a god given uh, that name by the Greeks because he was the god of mockery, the god of ridicule. And uh, Paul is saying here that he wants no fault, no blame, nothing to mock, nothing to ridicule to be found with his ministry. Uh, Calvin commenting on this verse says, Nothing is more ridiculous than striving to maintain your reputation before others while you invite reproach upon yourself by a shameful and base life. We've seen an example of that uh, in in the past week, not in the religious sphere, but in the political sphere. And he's absolutely right. Paul wants nothing of that in his ministry. No obstacle to anyone's being blessed through his work. No fault being found with his ministry. Uh, But as servants of God, he says, and note that's the posture, as servants of God, 
Paul is not a lord in the church. He's not a lord over others. He is a servant of God and a servant to his church. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, uh, as well as in Titus 1, where he, he uh, sets forth the qualities for those who would serve in the office of elder in the church, um, the foremost requirement is that the man be someone beyond reproach. Uh, and that's the very same kind of thing that he is talking about here. Someone who would not be an obstacle to people in the church because of his position. Someone with whom people could not find obvious and blatant fault with his life. Um, and that's the kind of thing that Paul says uh, of himself. It's the kind of thing that Paul says should be true of those who serve in office in the church. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It certainly doesn't mean they're without sin. But it means that their, their ministry is not a stumbling block to others. It means their ministry isn't, you know, that some one or that their character is not one with which people could evidently and readily and easily find something to blame or some fault in them. Well, that's Paul's passion. That's Paul's desire for his own ministry. And certainly that should be true of us. Uh, whatever ministry we might be engaged in, and certainly just in our Christian lives and living out our Christian life before others, we want to have that same kind of integrity. Uh, that there's not something that would be an obstacle to someone in our lives, in our children, who see us and observe us more closely than most, that there would be nothing in our lives that would be offensive to them together with our profession of faith in Christ. There would be a stumbling block to them. Do they see in you? The same person, basically, in the home that they see you to be here at church. There's been far too many children, covenant children, who have been scandalized by a significant discrepancy in the behavior of their parents at church and the behavior of their parents at home. And that should not be. Obviously, we're more relaxed at home. Uh, It's understandable. But in terms of basic character... Um, that should be true of us as Christians and our co-workers and, and neighbors. Um, so certainly should be true of those of us who serve as elders or deacons in the church. And so that's the kind of thing Paul is saying for himself. And certainly what we should desire also, that our lives would not present stumbling blocks to others, that people could not find fault with our ministries and indeed with our lives. Paul says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, Paul has already been concerned about being authenticated. Uh, you recall even earlier in this letter, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. Paul doesn't need letters of recommendation. Paul says that the church itself is his letter of recommendation, but it's not just the church. And here Paul says that we commend ourselves in every way. How? And this is where he goes into that list of various descriptions of things that he was involved in or happened to him. Uh, He does this again in chapter 11. In fact, we'll look for comparison uh, a little bit at some of those he mentions in chapter 11 as well. Well, what are these things that commend the ministry of Paul? First of all, in verse 4, he mentions great endurance. Uh, certainly, as you read the book of Acts, we, we are impressed with Paul's endurance, his 
uh, ability to quote the Tom X ad to take a licking and keep on ticking. Clement of Rome, who uh, wrote First Clement to the church in Corinth, probably the oldest existing Christian writing outside the documents of the New Testament, uh, and possibly the Clement referred to in Philippians, uh, makes this statement about Paul. He says, Paul, by his example, pointed out the prize of patient endurance. After he had been seven times in bonds, had been driven into exile, had been stoned and preached in the east and in the west, he won the noble renown which was the reward of his faith, having taught righteousness unto the whole world and having reached the farthest bounds of the west. And when he had borne this testimony before the rulers, so he departed from the world and went unto the holy place, having been found a notable pattern of patient endurance. Well, Paul uh, sought to commend himself by great endurance, and certainly Clement and many others have noted that uh, Paul did endure and press on. Well, he mentioned some other things there. In afflictions, hardships, and calamities. Afflictions, uh, Paul spoke, Acts 14, how through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom To the Ephesian elders, he spoke of his going to Jerusalem where the Holy Spirit had revealed that afflictions awaited him. Uh, Hardships, or could be translated necessities, Uh, perhaps those things that he was involved in or obligated to do in his preaching and teaching ministry, his traveling, uh, that put him in difficult or hard situations. We think even of... uh, uh, being in the storm on the sea, on the uh, Mediterranean Sea and being shipwrecked and other things that he endured in order to preach the gospel. And he was willing to endure those things to carry out his ministry, these hardships that came out of necessity. Calamities, uh, literally straits or a narrow, a tight place, a tight squeeze, we might say. Um, situations um, facing difficulties that, humanly speaking, seem without solution and yet are opportunities in that weakness for Christ's strength to be seen. Uh, So calamities, the things, the kinds of things we even read of in the book of Acts that happened to Paul. Uh, He goes on in verse 5, beatings, uh, imprisonments, riots, laborers, sleepless nights, hunger. Uh, Beatings, chapter 11, I mentioned uh, Paul recounts some of these things. Chapter 11, verse 23, he refers... Uh, to countless beatings. We wonder if Paul kept count at some point, but finally stopped counting. Countless beatings. Uh, we think particularly uh, Acts chapter 16 and Philippi, where Paul and Silas were beaten by the Philippian uh, magistrate. And in fact, when Paul wrote this, uh, he was somewhat midpoint in his career. There were still more beatings to be endured. He refers to his imprisonments, and again in chapter eleven twenty-three, he uh, mentions that far more imprisonments. Uh, again, imprisoned in Philippi, in Philippi, there where they were singing at midnight, and the Lord delivered them. He mentions the riots. You need only read through the book of Acts to learn the various riots that Paul had endured. And in fact, there was the uh, the riot in Jerusalem that has yet to occur, as when when Paul wrote Second Corinthians. Uh, He mentions labors, uh, just hard work, work for the gospel uh, that involved effort, that involved weariness to the body and to the mind, Uh, sleepless nights, 
Paul mentions in one place his care for the churches. Uh, no doubt those concerns that kept him awake at night, uh, and perhaps Paul referring to sleepless nights in terms of his working, his labors, uh, as well as perhaps nights when uh, the concerns he had kept sleep away. And he mentions hunger. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 27, he seems to make a distinction between fasting and being hungry. Probably here he's not referring to fasting, to voluntary deprivation, but simply uh, due to his travels and the, uh, the, uh, the difficulties he might face, having to go periods of time without eating when he otherwise might normally be able to eat and the hunger he would feel. And so he goes through this, this list of these difficulties, various terms for them, various experiences, that he had. But as we move into verse 6, he goes on to mention other things that commend his ministry that are not so much difficulties that he endured as they are uh, personal characteristics. In fact, a great deal of overlap here with the fruit of the Spirit that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5. He mentions in verse 6, by purity. Boy, if there's ever a, a way that an apostle uh, or a minister of the gospel or a Christian uh, should commend his ministry and commend his Christian life. It's certainly through purity, uh, purity of motive, certainly, but also purity of conduct, uh, absolutely essential and certainly distinguishing in our uh, immoral, sex-saturated culture. By purity is one way he commends himself, uh, by knowledge. Certainly uh, knowledge of Christ. Uh, Paul is not referring here to Gnosis, uh, some secret esoteric insider information as the mystery religions had it, but uh, to the knowledge of Christ and knowledge generally. Um, knowledge is not a, a means, or is not an end in itself, but is a means to growing in grace. Uh, but certainly for apostles, uh, certainly those who minister in the name of Christ, knowledge is a requirement. Ministry is a learned profession. Um, the Presbyterians have emphasized that, uh, the need for knowledge, the need to know the Bible, the need to know the Bible in its original languages. Um, and Paul certainly emphasizes that as something that commends him, his knowledge, his knowledge of God's Word. And we see that in his own writings, his quotations of the Old Testament, uh, his insight into the churches to which he wrote. Patience is another one. Uh, forbearance, the ability to endure personal injury from others and, and yet respond with grace and not with retaliation, not being provoked to anger or vengeance. Uh, kindness is another quality here, uh, coupled with patience, as in Galatians chapter 5, with the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, both, of course, expressions of Christian love, to be patient with those who uh, are not treating him properly, but kind in response, and the Holy Spirit. Now, it seems a little curious. He would just sort, sort of throw the Holy Spirit into a list, and without trying to get into the apostle's mind too much, he is listing the fruit of the Spirit here. And so perhaps for that reason, he's thinking along those same lines. These are the, the, the qualities that the Holy Spirit produces. And so he mentions the Holy Spirit. Uh, along with these qualities, uh, which certainly is something that commends him, the, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit as evidenced through these qualities and also through the power that he demonstrated in his ministry uh, in the lives of those to whom he ministered, that the Holy Spirit worked through him. The Holy Spirit means holiness. The Holy Spirit means power. And then he says genuine love. 
Um, not just love, but genuine love, unfeigned, unhypocritical, a sincere regard for the well-being, the spiritual and physical and emotional well-being of those to whom he ministered. And perhaps uh, that genuine love with an eye toward the impostors who had come in and were seeking influence with the Corinthians to their own advantage. Uh, perhaps Paul uh, sort of hinting that their expressions of love were not entirely sincere. Well, he goes on to describe his ministry, verse 7, by truthful speech, literally the word of truth. Some have translated it that way, seeing Paul as saying we commend ourselves through the proclamation of the truth. Well, that certainly was true. But along with genuine love, it seems perhaps best to take this as uh, when he says the, uh, the word of truth is basically equaling a true word. In other words, truthful speech. When we spoke, we not only came with genuine love, but we came with truthful speech. We were not trying to deceive you or manipulate you in what we say. Uh, truthful speech and the power of God. Again, certainly Paul was concerned about power of God in his ministry seen through his weakness in 1 Corinthians, his first letter, chapter 2, um, in verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, Paul recognized that ultimately it was not him, it was not his considerable intellectual power, it was not his uh, force of will, but it was the power of God, seen particularly in his weakness, that was accomplishing the work. And so he points to the power of God in them as being something that commends his ministry to them. The power of God and the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, uh, sort of a hint of uh, Ephesians 6 here in the whole armor of God. The right hand and, for the, and the left, uh, some have tried to read probably more into that than is warranted. Uh, both the offensive weapon of the sword, the defensive weapon of the shield, the one in the right hand, the other in the left. Probably Paul's just saying all around, from any side, uh, we are able to, uh, to defend ourselves, the weapons of righteousness uh, prepared to meet an attack from any quarter. Well, he continues then in uh, verse 8, through honor and dishonor. There will be those who uh, hold him in high esteem, and there would be those who will heap insult and dishonor on him, and sometimes to the same people at different times. Uh, honor and dishonor. Uh, that's True for Paul, it's true for anyone who has labored in the ministry in the church for any length of time. There will be those who praise his name and those who curse his name. And that's just the reality of it. And that will be true of you if you minister in anyone's life for any length of time uh, and are involved in that way. It's just the way people are, the way the world is. And all too often, sadly, the way the church is. Uh, but Paul knows what it is to be honored and what it is to be dishonored, to be esteemed and to be spoken against. And along those lines, he speaks of slander and praise. Paul was aware that people spoke of him behind his back. He knew that people would talk about him and speak of him. And his response, as far as he con is concerned, is, is that which Peter described in chapter 2, verse 23. He spoke of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And as Paul spoke in another place, he uh, said basically in so many words, he, he isn't terribly concerned about what people say about him, that he doesn't even judge himself. He leaves the evaluation in the hands of the Lord. And then he says, treated as impostors and yet are true. Uh, Paul was spoken of as an imposter by the uh, false teachers who had come into Corinth. He was, it was said he was a deceiver. He was a, an imposter. He was a false teacher, a false apostle. Um, it's interesting uh, that Paul would use this term in Matthew chapter 27, verse 63. Uh, we see that Paul was very much like his master. Uh, Matthew 27 Verse 63, um, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. They said Jesus was an imposter and Paul was in good company and being likewise labeled and yet are true. Accused of being an imposter, uh, Satan does try to overthrow the real work of God by calling it falsehood. And yet he's true. You know, the, the, the interesting and in some ways tragic thing about this is it's still true. There are those to this day who say, well, Paul came in and corrupted the real Christianity of Jesus. You know, he came in and created a system. He came in and created the church. You know, he, he, he distorted, he twisted the pure religion that Jesus had started. Of course, that's right nonsense. Paul and Jesus are not divided. Paul was the spokesman, the apostle of Jesus, but there are those to this day who would pit uh, Paul against Jesus, basically accuse him of being an imposter who messed up the church and the work of Jesus. But that's, as you know, ridiculous. In verse 9, he says, as unknown and yet well-known. Well, Paul was the preacher of a crucified Messiah. Uh, Certainly he looms large in our thinking, but in the world of his day, he was basically, uh, as far as the the world was concerned, for the most part, basically a nobody, although well-known in Christian circles, and in many ways that's true today. He certainly is well-known with God. He certainly is well-known in the church, and I would suspect much better known even among the world at large today than many of those who held positions of visibility and power and influence in his day. The Lord knows those who were his. Uh, and Paul considered himself, I suppose, well known with those with whom he was concerned to be known. Paul says of himself and his fellow apostles, as dying and behold, we live. Paul doesn't use the word behold a great deal. Uh, Matthew likes to use it a lot. Matthew likes to use it because it's dramatic, because it says, see this. Well, Paul, Paul does use it here. As dying and behold, we live. Remember, Paul was at least once given up for dead, left for dead, and he got up and he went back into the city. With all due respect to the apostle, he was a lot, a lot like the cat with nine lives. There were any number of occasions when he should have been dead, but wasn't. Um, one person says nothing could detract from the wonder of this cheating of death. Hence the spontaneous and exulting exclamation, Behold, as dying and behold, we live. And you know, that's going to be literally fulfilled in the resurrection. We do die, literally, but we do live, literally, in the resurrection. And likewise, he says, as punished 
and yet not killed. The word that ESV translates as punished is a word that could mean to be chastened, to be disciplined, perhaps even by God himself. However, that doesn't seem to fit the context, and it doesn't seem to be what Paul is getting at here. Rather, it could also refer to the scourging, the uh, whipping that takes place before one's execution. We think of Jesus, who himself was scourged before he was taken out to be crucified. Well, Paul is saying basically here, in the face of dying and yet we live, that, that we receive the scourging, we just never quite get to the carrying out of the execution. Uh, but we're right there on the edge of it. We suffer. Uh, we are punished. And yet not executed. Uh, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Uh, Paul certainly had the deep abiding joy of Christ in his heart, and yet he was not immune to sorrows. He was not immune to disappointments. He was not immune to heartbreak when friends would fail him and converts uh, might falter and the work in which he spent so much effort and toil seems to be on the brink. Uh, You know, when Paul wrote, Demas, who loved this present world, has left me, you know, we just read that as words, but Demas was someone Paul knew, someone he had worked with, and someone who ultimately left the work to go to the world because he loved the world. You know, we read those easily, but think what those meant in terms of real lives and real people to whom Paul administered, poured his life into, discipled, only to see them go to the world or only to see them perhaps even turn their back on him or turn against him. Um, And yet, there was a real joy in Christ that those kinds of things could not overcome. And and, in a real way, that's the Christian life. There is a great deal of sorrow and pain, and yet there is also intermingled with that a great deal of joy. It's true of the Christian life. It's certainly true of ministry. Uh, He goes on to say, as poor yet making many rich. Uh, Paul certainly was poor. No one would describe the apostle as a wealthy man, and yet he himself... Uh, brought to many the unsearchable riches of Christ. He was someone who uh, made many rich. And then likewise, he ends by saying, as having nothing, not just poor, but as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Uh, I like the way uh, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, uh, former professor at uh, Westminster Seminary years ago, Quits it. He says, speaking of that, that expression, to the uncomprehending onlooker, the Apostle Paul must have presented the picture of destitution, without home, without money, without possessions, hated and hunted by his own countrymen, proclaiming a message despised by Jew and Gentile alike. But at the same time, the observer must have been arrested and puzzled to mark the otherworldly gleam in the Apostle's eye. His utter dedication to the mission he had espoused, his disregard of suffering and comfort, his exalted view of life, his compassionate love for others, and the joy and peace that constantly sustained his spirit. It was indeed true that this remarkable man, who lacked the very things that most regard as necessary to make life tolerable, conducted himself as though he were the possessor of all things. And so, in fact, he was. To have Christ is to have all, for Christ is all. Paul knew full well a man could own the world, and without Christ he had nothing. 
but to have nothing and yet have Christ is to possess everything. And that's how Paul saw himself. And it's this list of things that he mentions, uh, just the overflow of his heart as he assesses his own life and ministry, that he says commends himself and commends his ministry and that of his fellow apostles to the Corinthian church. But then he ends with an appeal that he makes here in verses 11, 12, and 13. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us. You're restricted in your own affections. Paul basically says, we've been open with you. We have been forthright with you. We have been honest with you. And Paul has just poured out his heart to them about the things that, that speak to them, of the, his authenticity as an apostle. And he says, the problem here is not us. It's not me. It's you. You are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. And I think when he says, I speak as to children, the point is not to belittle them. It's to speak as to those who are his children, as a father might to his children, appealing to them because of the closeness. And he is their spiritual father. He is their father in Christ. Uh, He appeals to them as to his children to widen their hearts also, to be open to him, to, uh, to once again embrace him in their affections. Well, very moving passage, uh, and in some ways very particular to Paul. Uh, There's much about this experience that you and I do not share. However, as a minister of the gospel, for those of you who are officers in the church, but even for all of us as Christians living the Christian life, the kinds of things that Paul says here apply to us, because these are the very same kinds of things that commend us as followers of Christ to one another, and to those around us, and particularly to those who are outside the faith. Because the things that Paul, Paul describes here are the things that give the ring of authenticity, the uh, certified genuineness of who we are in Christ. It was a witness that the Corinthians needed to see, and it's a witness that you and I need to see in one another, and that the world needs to see in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your servant, Paul. And Lord, even as he could point to those things that commended him and his ministry, Lord, I pray that would be true of me as a minister of this church. I pray that would be true of my fellow elders. I pray that would be true of the deacons of this church. I pray that would be true of us as parents, as our children watch us and learn from us. And I pray, Father, that would be true of all of us together, uh, individually, Uh, that our lives would show forth this same reality of Christian experience, both in godly character and a willingness to patiently endure difficulties for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, that would testify to the reality of your work in us and of our belonging to you. And we pray it would be so more and more. Lord, we know that we will always have those sins, those faults that do diminish us that do discourage us, and perhaps those around us. But we pray, Lord, that you would grow us in grace, that more and more these kinds of things that commended Paul would commend us as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.